0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. You may have noticed that Bioethics On Air has been on hiatus during the fall of 2023. The reason is that back in August, yours truly was asked to take over the role of NCBC Director of Education. And since that time, I have been focused on updating our NCBC certification program and moving the program to a completely online format. For information on the updated National Catholic Certification Program in Healthcare Ethics, as well as to register for one of our upcoming courses, please go to ncbcenter.org, hover on the Education tab, and click on Certification Program. We hope to resume recording Bioethics on Air episodes on a regular basis over the coming months. In August 2023, I recorded the podcast Update on UDDA Revisions and Concerns with Normothermic Regional Perfusion with Pediatric Neurologist Chris DeCock. In that interview, Chris discussed the state of proposed revisions to the Uniform Determination of Death Act, or UDDA, as well as both medical and ethical concerns surrounding a controversial procedure called Normothermic Regional Perfusion, or NRP. This podcast is linked in the show notes, and I should mention that unless listeners are familiar with these issues, it probably would be a good idea to listen or listen again to that interview before listening to this one. In this interview, Chris returns to discuss three things concerning brain death. First, what happened with the UDDA revision process? Second, the new and might want to say problematic, American Academy of Neurology, Donation by Neurological Criteria Consensus Guidelines. And third, informed consent challenges concerning how normothermic regional perfusion is being practiced in our country today. Krista Cox, sorry for the long introduction, but welcome back to Bioethics on Air.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Joe. I very much appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues.
0: All right. So today is really, we're kind of updating uh, where we were. This this uh, we've, There's been quite a uh, a voyage through the world of brain death here over the past year or so. But as I mentioned uh, in the intro, back in August of 2023, the two of us recorded the podcast, again, uh, update on UDDA revisions and concerns with normal thermic regional perfusion, again, linked in the show notes. Chris, first off, let's talk about the UDDA revision process. What ultimately happened um, with efforts to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act?
1: All right. Well, I'm glad you asked. So basically, you know, after the meeting, I was unclear as to what the eventual outcome would be. Okay, this is the meeting from July of 2023. Correct. Yep. After the annual meeting in July of. 2023 in Honolulu. And I was optimistic that the proposal brought forward, that neurorespiratory respiratory proposal, the one that is a partial brain death standard, the standard that would make a patient like Jahai McMath, who was able to undergo puberty... You know, after a declaration of brain death, or that same standard that would basically say if you're gestating a pregnancy, you're dead anyway. Obviously, those things don't make sense, and so you know we can we can call that a partial brain death standard. But I was I was fairly optimistic that that you know that wouldn't be pushed through. Primarily because the American College of Physicians, an organization that was four times larger, well, I should say is four times larger than the American Academy of Neurology, was strongly opposed to the potential revisions. And it was pretty darn clear that there was no medical consensus. And one of the commissioners at the meeting rightly stated that the job of the Uniform Law Commission was to reflect consensus when consensus was there, not to impose it or to make it where no consensus occurred. So I was, I was fairly optimistic, but it wasn't until the end of September when I received an email um, from the drafting committee. As you recall, I'm an observer on that committee and the email read as such. In consultation with the Uniform Law Commission leadership, And based on feedback from the first reading of our efforts to date, we have decided to pause the revision of the UDDA effort. The result of this pause is that although we will continue to hope mid-level principles will become apparent, no further drafting committee meetings will be scheduled at this time. We will continue to monitor developments in this area, and if we see promising signs of a possible path forward toward a widely enactable revised act, we can then reassess having the committee resume its work. So basically, we're not doing anything anymore. It looks like the the uniform determination of death act from the 19 you know 1980 1981 is still going to be the standard that you know we base our determinations on and of course that standard just to recall what the uniform determination of death act states is it states that a person can be determined dead when they have irreversible loss of cardiac pulmonary function or irreversible loss of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. And that's what the UDDA says. And so at this and that's, point... And just, to clarify, and just to clarify, that's where we are today. Nothing was changed correct. with that? Nothing was changed at all.
0: And that's what you and we at the NCBC and and many others um, were hoping for, that essentially there would be no change in the UDDA.
1: Correct. That was Got that it. was the hope, because as I said in previous podcasts, it's a good law. And, you know, it aligns with what we know about biology, and it li- aligns with what the Catholic Church teaches about brain death, that, you know, in order for brain death to be considered death, it had to be irreversible, and it had to be whole brain death. And that's what the law states at this standpoint. All right. So what did some people have to say about this, uh, this this non-revision well um dr robert trug and david magnus these are both big names in bioethics uh, mm-hmm. dr trug um actually thinks we should abolish the dead donor rule uh, he's at uh, harvard and um, david magnus is the editor of the american journal of bioethics so it's, it's big big name so they wrote an article. Uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association about, you know, this non-starter event. And overall, it was an okay article. And the problem is, though, of course, they glossed over the main issues and misrepresented other issues. Um, The biggest one is they state that, look, death is permanent. Death isn't irreversible. If you recall from our last podcast when we talked about the difference between irreversible and permanent. Permanent means that you will not reverse, whereas irreversible means you cannot reverse. Mm -hmm. And they talked about this article from Nature, which we had discussed in the last podcast, looking at pig brains after they were decapitated. And in that article, the results of that article states that their studies Reveal an underappreciated potential for cellular recovery after prolonged whole body warm ischemia in a large mammal. That was their conclusion. What what does that mean in English? Well, so basically, after they chopped off these pigs' heads and then reperfused them, there was some recovery of some cells. And so they're using that to state that you know, death isn't, there's not a moment of death, you know, we are just deciding that death occurs at this point, but, you know, sensors potential recovery for a long time afterwards, well, then we got it wrong. Death is really more permanent as far as brain death is concerned. And As I said before, it it just doesn't work for the brain. I mean, there's a number of reasons why it doesn't work for the brain. And and we'll talk about those later in the show. But, you know, Trug and Magnus, just like, you know, they did in the UDDA, they were both observers as well, um, said, no, we need to change death from a irreversible standard to a permanent standard. So they actually said in this article that, oh, death has always been a permanent standard. Well, that's not true, you know. Now, with cardiopulmonary death, there is a shred of truth there. We talked about this before. A do not resuscitate order means we're not going to resuscitate a patient, whereas we could resuscitate a patient. But like I said before, it's not like we're resuscitating a brain. You know, the brain undergoes liquefactive necrosis where the cells die liquefied and are flushed out of the system. That seems pretty irreversible to me. And so that was one of the claims they made that was problematic. Additionally, they said that there were, you know, they implied that there was an effort to align medical practice with the law. There was never any effort to do that. And the drafting committees no one ever tried to do that. In fact, when we tried to get people to do that, they said, well, we're not going to do it because it's going to cut the number of available organs in half. And moreover, the first draft that we received was, a, is, was wildly different than the UDDA. It, it stated that life and death began with consciousness, only consciousness. And, of course, that would be even worse than a partial brain death standard. You know, basically, if you can't think, then you're dead. So now, persistent vegetative state patients would be dead as well. So there was never really any effort to try and align medicine with the law. And they also erroneously stated that, well, actually fulfilling the criteria of the law would just be too hard. You know, we'd have to test all of these functions of the brain. The problem is it isn't. It's not difficult. Um, Dr. Somasi and I, you know, wrote an article about this in neurology. We've got another one that's coming out in chest. And, you know, expanding testing isn't difficult. The only thing that's difficult is that the people that want to change the UDDA don't want to do more testing. They want to do less testing. Hmm. And, what you know? What I find particularly disappointing about you know Magnus' Magnus's article is they never give a justification. So why they wouldn't try to bring medicine in line with the law? You know, it's just they they put up all these barriers and then they don't justify it. And actually, I was talking with um, the former president of the Catholic Medical Association the way the articles worded it, it makes it sound like the Catholic Medical Association was in favor of these revisions. Well, that's clearly not true. As we know, they wrote, you know, statements against these revisions. They were in favor of opt-outs, you know, so if people didn't believe that brain death was actually death, that they could opt out, but they were in no way in favor of these revisions. And The other thing that they didn't do in this article is they completely failed to mention the American College of Physicians statement that said, look, you can't do this. I mean, that's the thing that really brought this to a screeching halt. You know, you've got an organization that's four times larger than the American Academy of Neurology. It's the second largest physician association, you know, apart from the American Medical Association saying you can't change the UDDA. I think they should have included that in, in their article, in their response to this non starter of the UDDA. And, you know, if you actually look at the numbers, if you go to the Uniform Law Commission's website and you look at the number of comments they received about revising the UDDA, they received 60 second, 67 comments to date, 82%. Were opposed to adopting a less rigorous standard than the UDDA, and of course, Trug and Magnus don't mention this fact as well—that yeah. yeah. there is an overwhelming, you know, opposition to changing, you know, the UDDA. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And one of those, uh, of the 82%, one of them is a statement that we at the NCBC signed with the, uh, the pro-life secretary of the USCCB, which Chris, you helped us draft. So that's yeah. another example of
1: that. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, throughout the article, they use this term, it's called long-term somatic support. And I just hate that term because it's basically saying, you know, patients like Jahai, you know, who were undergoing puberty, who were severely damaged, that they're not people. It's just, it's really a demeaning term. And, you know, and again, it's its one of those things where they you really should be objective about this. You shouldn't be using misleading language. You shouldn't be misrepresenting things. But unfortunately, a lot of this debate has been you know misrepresentation, and and I guess I hate to say it. I mean I, I shouldn't be surprised because no more than a month after we received the email, the American Academy of Neurology came out with their new practice guidelines for brain death determination, and I'm going to try to be as charitable as I can, but it appears that the American Academy of Neurology is suffering from amnesia regarding the last two years of the UDDA revision attempts. You know, it's it's just it's it's a little frustrating.
0: No, I, I hear you. And actually, I, I wanted this is actually a nice transition because I wanted to move into the the AAN guidelines because this is something that happened subsequent to when we recorded our last podcast in in um, in August. So, all right. So, Chris, you mentioned the American Academy of Neurology came out with new guidelines. You said they're disappointing to you. In what ways, specifically, as a neurologist, uh, or as you know, as a as a faithful Catholic as well, in what way or ways are the new brain death guidelines that were put out by the American Academy of Neurology disappointing?
1: Well, there are a number of ways. I'm only going to talk about three main ways. And actually, um, some colleagues from Georgetown and I wrote a letter to the editor that is available on the Neurology Journal linked to the actual guidelines. So if you want it in writing, as soon as they fix their glitch, because you can see that it exists, but you can't actually read our comments, I'm going to be discussing these comments now. The first one is that in the new practice guidelines, the American Academy of Neurology states that they are, quote, the accepted medical standard, end quote. brain death determination now we didn't talk about this earlier when i had quoted the udda well after they say that you know you you know determination of death and they talk about how you do it it states a determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards in the new practice guidelines the aan the American Academy of Neurology, claims that they are that standard. Now, in the drafting committee, you know, there was discussion about should we specify which standard the law should be based on? And the consensus was no, we should not, and for two very good reasons. So the first reason is the standard might change in light of new information. So legally, you don't want to say, hey. You should follow the 2023 AAN practice guidelines because if those guidelines change, then are you going to change the law again? Well, of course you're not, right? And so, you know, you don't want to be too specific because, you know, medicine changes, new discoveries are made. And sometimes we find out that what we recommended before isn't correct. And so that's the first reason why I think the AAN is. Erroneously claiming that they are the accepted medical standard because they're not, because there isn't a specific accepted medical standard. At mm-hmm. least that's what the people that were revi- looking at revising the UDDA thought. Can I ask this you? Second, a,
0: a, oh, go ahead. A, a, a clarifying question. So, how many right now? You're, you're a neurologist. Other than the AAN guidelines, are there other brain death guidelines out there? And if so, how many different ones are there? So.
1: To be, to be fair, the AN guidelines are probably the guidelines the vast majority of people so, use. So they're the However, gold standard, essentially. They are unofficially. Okay. okay. However, like the CHA, the Catholic Health Association, just put out a podcast a little over a year ago, I think, where the folks at Georgetown said, hey, you know, these guidelines are not acceptable. We need to improve. Are testing, and so if they're actually doing it, well, that's a different standard, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and if if I had my brothers, you know, I would improve um, testing at our hospital as well.
0: But clinically, right now, if you're as a neurologist, if you're diagnosing someone brain dead, are is there another standard, or are there other guidelines other than the AAN guidelines that you would presently
1: use? I do not know of any other official guidelines for brain death determination in the United States. Now, there are different guidelines in different countries. So, for example, in the UK, they have a brain stem determination. So, they only require brain stem death, not cortical death. So, it is a (laughs) looser standard. So, of course, that standard would be followed by those in the UK legally. Okay. I just want to clarify that. no, no. And, that, and that's a fair point. However, like I said, just because they're the standard that most people use doesn't make them the right standard. Right. And then the other point that the UDDA drafting committee said, look, we can't specify a standard is because there could be more than one standard. And like I said, you know, if my colleagues at Georgetown are actually saying, no, we need informed consent for apnea testing, or we need to test this, or other hospitals say we need to test this, then that's what we're, they're going to do. And to be clear, it's based on hospital policy. So a hospital decides which standard they're going to use whether, you know, whether or not it's the AAN practice guidelines or a different set of guidelines. So, you know, so it's, yes, the AAN guidelines are the most common guideline, but it's pretty well understood that they're also insufficient in doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about this stuff. Yeah. Actually, in your notes, um, you sent me, there was an interesting
0: case that came out of Nevada. And I was wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about that.
1: That is a very interesting case. And we actually did discuss it in the drafting committee for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. So it's a case from 2015. It's in guardianship of HILU. So what happened is there was a 20-year-old woman who was in a terrible um, accident. I'm not exactly sure what the accident was. Is this HILU? Is this I, I, She's the patient here. Yes. Okay. Um. So she was in a terrible accident, and she was placed on a ventilator, and she failed an apnea test. So okay. someone did brain death determination, and they mm-hmm. s- told the family, specifically her father, they said, "Look, she's brain dead. We're going to withdraw life sustaining treatments." And her father said, "No, I, you know." I I don't believe that she's actually dead. I don't want you to do this. And the law actually challenged whether or not the criteria that was used at that point, it would have been the 2010 AAN practice guidelines, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, if they were an accepted medical standard. And initially they said, "Yep, they are. But then the Supreme Court of Nevada stated, look, that's not correct. The holding was that the district court failed to properly consider whether or not the American Academy of Neurology Guidelines adequately, me- adequately measured all functions in the entire brain, including the brain stem. And they determined that they did not. And therefore, the father actually won that case. Hmm. Now, unfortunately... What happened after that is the lawmakers in Nevada then changed the law so that they stated that the American Academy of Neurology Practice Guidelines were the accepted medical standard. So I'm just glad I don't live in Nevada.
0: Oy, oy, oy. Interesting stuff, Chris. Let me ask you a question, and this is, and I want you to tell me if I'm right on this or if I'm wrong on this. So, kind of bringing the UDDA revisions together with the AAN guidelines. So three things. First, the medical criteria for determining brain death are not sufficient to meet the definition of death in the UDDA, right? We talked about that before. Efforts to revise the UDDA, in other words, to lower essentially the legal threshold of death to meet the inadequate medical criteria, failed. Correct. Well, and they're put on hold. Put on hold, but the but the and effort to change put them, on hold, right? But the effort correct. of those who wanted to change them they they didn't they were not successful.
1: At least at this point.
0: At least at this point. So then the AAN immediately afterwards. Now I I recognize this has probably been in the works for a while, but the AAN adopted new clinical guidelines that essentially accomplish what could not be accomplished by efforts to revise the UDDA. Is that correct? Is, is, that,
1: is that an accurate portrayal of what's going yes, on? Yes, it here. is. The, okay. the new guidelines that we had criticized, that neuro-respiratory proposal that we had criticized in the last two podcasts are exactly what the new mm-hmm. clinical guidelines are saying. Okay. So That's, first of all, they state, one, they're the accepted medical standard. The second thing they say is, look, death is permanent. Death has always been permanent, which of course is not true. Um, and that's the other big problem that, you know, I and my colleagues at Georgetown have with these guidelines is the legal standard is irreversible loss of all functions in the entire brain. The AN guidelines state, if you have a permanent coma, if you have permanent respiratory dysfunction, you're dead. That's it. That's all you need, uh, in order to be declared dead. The problem is we're animals just like anyone else. If we're dead, we disintegrate and die, period. So in order to have someone like Jahai Mcnath living for four years, undergoing puberty, she's not biologically dead. Mm -hmm. So to say that we are going to accept a lesser standard is unacceptable. To say that it's permanent, that we're deciding that they're dead, is highly problematic. Now, I had said before that, you know, a permanent standard in brain death doesn't make any sense. Well, the first thing is, in the actual guidelines, you have to rule out reversible causes to make sure you don't have a false positive, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, if you're saying, well, no, it's not actually... You know, it's not irreversible. Then, what's the point of you know removing reversible causes? Why not just declare them brain dead anyway? So, first of all, you have to you rule out reversible causes. So it would make sense then your standard is one of irreversibility. Mm -hmm. The second one I had talked about earlier is liquefactive necrosis. When brain cells die, they're liquefied and flushed out of the system. I mean, they're not coming back. Right? They're never coming back. And I got to tell you, if that ain't irreversible, I'm not sure what is, (laughs) you know, the other thing is the implications of this. So if you say, well, no, death is not irreversible anymore. Now it's permanent. You're implying that death is not based on objective fact, that it's based on subjective opinion. And let's be fair. Is that really gonna help public trust? Is that really what we wanna tell loved ones, you know, when we're asking for their organs, you know, oh yeah, we're you're dead enough. I mean, and that's the problem. This these guidelines are dead enough is good enough. And, you know, it's gonna have a huge effect on public trust if people ever hear about it.
0: Yeah. Chris, you mentioned in the last podcast, and I think it's just worth mentioning here, that kind of in a practical sense that Irreversible means one cannot resuscitate another, whereas permanent means
1: we will not resuscitate another. Correct. And, and that's really important because will not implies that we could, but we're not going to. And like I said, we do that in cardiopulmonary death. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, but that, that sort of standard doesn't work for brain death it just never has worked yeah and the third thing i was gonna say there's more oh
0: my goodness it's like we were
1: (laughs) the third thing is that the new guidelines blatantly ignore the role and the significance of persistent hypothalamic function
0: yeah and this is this is a big one we've
1: talked about this in the past
0: yeah so let's talk
1: about that talk about this one this is this is a good one so so they use this term we have discussed it last time about the brain as a whole is dead. That's basically a partial brain death standard. That is the neuro respiratory proposal. It's like saying on the whole, the brain is dead, you know, it's dead enough. Right. And the problem is, this is a very confusing euphemism. I mean, who decides how much brain has to be dead? Right. Is it, is, is, is it enough to be dead? I mean, they say, well, you know, neurologists practice this way. And so, you know, it, it must be good. But the problem is it it really begs the question, you know, how much and what parts of the brain must be dead in order to decide that the brain has, you know, met that legal standard, you know, loss of all functions in the entire brain, including the brainstem, you know. And I'm going to quote, you know, our letter to the editor um, for these AAN guidelines. Biology is not based on perspective, opinion, or consensus. A set of biological functions does not lose significance because some cadre of people wish it to be so. Such a stance has historically been shown to be problematic at least and heinous at worst. And I know I'm using, you know, pretty strong language in there but you know if we can decide that some members of the human species are not human or that they're not alive anymore there's all sorts of abuses that can happen and when you look at you know the objection to this yes there were some religious groups that said look we will not accept a brain death standard no matter what Mm -hmm. right like conservative Jews and conservative Muslims, a lot of them do not believe in the concept of brain death at all, then look at the Catholic Church. It says, look, brain death is only acceptable with irreversible loss of all functions of the entire brain, basically the UDDA. But you also have other people, such as Dr. Nair Collins, who states that hypothalamic neurosecretory function must cease for a determination of brain death, right? In order to say that Mm -hmm. whole brain death exists, that must cease. Then you've got Dr. Somazi, who's showed quite convincingly that, you know, this hypothalamic function is necessary for self-integration of the whole. Like I said, we're not special just because we're humans we're still animals we are still biological organisms and all biological organisms when they die they decay they putrefy they you know they get stiff you know all of that occurs and to state that we're different that it has something to do with our ability to communicate is just not biologically true hmm. and the american college of physicians like i said stated you can't do that. They said, the standards for determining death should not be changed to accommodate testing approaches. Instead, testing should be more sensitive and specific to meet the standards for the determination of death. And the standards, the legal standards, are those of whole brain death. And the AN is ignoring this. And like I said, in ignoring this, they're ignoring 82% of those comments that said this standard is unacceptable. And now you're dealing with a situation where you've got a lot of people that don't find this standard acceptable. You've got religious people, you've got scientific people that find this. Basically, they're ignoring legitimate interests of individuals and groups seeking what is factually correct and technically right as a basis for actions that are morally good for the care of patients. Sorry, I quoted our our statement again to, you know, neurology on these new practice mm-hmm. guidelines. You know, it's like what John Paul II said. You're not going to increase trust by cutting corners. In order for organ donation to be morally legitimate, you need to have moral certainty that this patient is dead. And in these new guidelines, they're abandoning a criteria of certitude, and they're trying to sort of, you know, push it under the rug. They're uh-huh. ignoring the law. Hmm. Yeah really interesting and a real tough one.
0: Well, here's the practical question. What do we do about it? Um, Or what can we do about it? Um, Particularly when it it appears, at least anyway, that the American Academy of Neurology is ignoring those, maybe that's a bit strong, I don't know, but ignoring those who don't agree with it.
1: Well, you know, thanks to your help and others, we've been able to get organizations on board, you know, to protest these changes in the UDDA. There hasn't been such an effort with the new American Academy of Neurology Practice Guidelines. But the problem is, you know, the American Academy of Neurology knows they're ignoring the law and they're getting away with it. Nobody's doing anything. To them, and and to be fair, people are not taking notice of this. Well, you just know, to, just excited- to
0: clarify, and I can't speak to details about this, but there there actually are. Um, so there there are some things afoot to to respond to it, but I, I just can't speak about it in the in the podcast because they're they're ongoing. But uh, hopefully, by well, no, the time no, this podcast comes the out, work. it
1: will be yeah. There are things in the work, but for example, I was complaining to someone recently in the last two years. If we, if we look at national media coverage, you know, like TV, right? Not, mm-hmm. no offense, I'm discounting your podcast. You've done a great <laughs> job, Joe. I appreciate all the opportunities well, been you've given past, me. We've been on hiatus for the past four months too, so. But in the past two years, there has been a total of 20 minutes of national media coverage about this issue. There was more national media coverage about Pope Bennett or um, Cardinal uh, Cardinal Burke's apartment in one week (laughs) than there has been on this issue in two years. Joseph Meaney, your boss, got five minutes on EWTN. Bobby Schindler, Terry Schiavo's brother, got five minutes. And then Michael Vaca, who's a friend of um, your boss, who hmm. is in charge of the Healthcare Civil Rights Task Force, got 10 minutes. And then, other than this podcast, there's been nothing. And, and, and I don't, I, I feel like I'm crazy because unless we can get people to stand up and take note, I don't know that we're actually going to make any headway. I mean, we're talking about a change from a biological determination of death to a non-biological one. We're talking about patients that are being diagnosed as being dead when they're actually not dead. And there's no response. It's just like crickets in the audience. I, I don't hear people protesting, writing their congressmen you know, really getting, getting, getting worked up about it. I, I don't know if it's because we're afraid of our own metat- our mortality or, you know, we just are naive enough to think, well, that, that can't really be happening. But I mean, unless something changes, I fear that this is going to be a long, slow defeat.
0: Yeah. No, I hear you. And I, I think, you know, in terms of what people are, at least in terms of what Catholics are, are, Focused on, I think you know certainly the abortion debates and, and the abortion votes. You know the efforts of the abortion industry to you know enshrine so-called abortion rights in state constitutions. I think that's getting attention um, as we go. You know, we're, we're as we're at the time we're um, recording this podcast, the whole question about blessings um, is is mm-hmm. taking center stage and stuff. So I think, and, and that's not to say that that's an excuse or anything, but I think there, there's so much that we face. That you know this this is just it's 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 one more thing um and it, unfortunately it's a very very important thing um it kind of as you mentioned before you know the 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 determination of death for some people is you know it has to do with you know do people have consciousness are they able to make decisions and that type of thing we we see that at the beginning of life as well too so it's the 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 two issues are very very closely related but you know hopefully with this podcast and and with some of the efforts that I do know are underway, the hopefully there will be some more uh, some more light will be shed upon this and and you know hopefully it will, it will it will bear fruit similar to how our efforts bore fruit um, with the u d d a but chris, i'd like to if if we kind of like to uh, to shift gears a little bit um so back in the the August podcast, only we've been referring to. You discussed both medical and ethical concerns with a practice called nomothermic regional perfusion, or NRP, and and you go into detail in that podcast so people can listen to that that podcast if they want. But in recent months, um, you and I know that uh, stories have come to light about NRP being done in hospitals without the hospital's knowledge or approval. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, and is this something that's common? In hospitals, including Catholic hospitals in our
1: country? Well, I know about three hospital organizations for sure where this has occurred, where all of a sudden it's a surprise to the hospital. They had no idea that the organ procurement organizations were coming in and, you know, doing this procedure. Now, to be clear, uh, for the listeners, you know, we've been talking about brain death determination. This procedure, this normal thermic regional perfusion occurs after cardiopulmonary okay, right. death. So, so we got a big shift here. Yeah. And but, again, we talked about this in detail in the last yes, podcast. Yes, we did. So
0: again, so please, you know, if people are not aware of what Chris is talking about, please go back and listen to that podcast because he just, de- he, he describes it in very clear detail.
1: Right. And so, you know, big hospital group in Minnesota, you know, I think there was someone in what you guys would call the Midwest, you know, out there on the East coast, you know, (laughs) um, there was another hospital. Um, I know of yet another hospital, a colleague of mine down at Baylor told me about some, uh, hospitals that this has occurred at. I don't know if Baylor was one of them or not, but you know, I find it troubling. First of all, To have someone coming in, doing something in a hospital, and the hospital doesn't actually know what's going on. Because ultimately, from a legal standpoint, they're liable, right? You're using that hospital, and from a moral and an ethical standpoint, they're liable as well. You know, you can talk about cooperation with evil. It'd be like if someone came into a Catholic hospital and started doing abortions. That would be a big deal. And we know that this has happened in at least three hospitals. And I say at least because... The nomothermic regional perfusion happened. Correct. Not not the abortions. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. (laughs) So we know that this has happened in at least three hospitals. I am very sure that it's likely happened in a lot more. And let's be fair. People aren't going to be advertising, oh, yeah, we're not actually telling the hospitals what we're doing in their hospital. And, and that's really problematic for a number of reasons. Now, one of these hospitals was a Catholic hospital. Now, there's no specific uh, ethical and religious directive that talks about normal thermic regional perfusion. But as there are medical debates on whether or not the patient is actually dead or not, there is an ERD that states that, look, organ donation can only occur when the patient is dead. And so right th- right off the bat, if we're not certain that the patient is dead, now you're violating your ERDs in your Catholic hospital. And ERDs, to be clear, are ethical and religious directives for ca- Catholic hospital, um, whether it, healthcare systems or something like that. It's, it's a long name. It's put out <laughs> by the, uh, the USCCB, uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and Just hospitals are supposed to... You know, follow those ethical and religious directives. Yeah.
0: So it's the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, and the particular directive that you're talking about is Directive 62.
1: Well, good. And I'm glad you can quote them. I cannot. <laughs> I know that there's a problem, but I can't we, quote the exact. We see them,
0: them so there. often. It's like, oh, uh, we we know them by heart.
1: Right. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, and, Chris. Go ahead. And and moreover, you know, not only did we discuss last time that you know, you know there are problems, it's not just a religious problem either. Again, the American College of Physicians came out and said, look, we can't actually be doing this. So this is a procedure where there's no medical consensus either. And if you've got a procedure where there's no medical consensus, why are you, first of all, why are you doing it? That would be the first question. But why are you not telling hospital organizations that you're doing it? And You know, the American College of Physicians is against it. This procedure is illegal in Australia. I don't know why Australia, but it is. And not surprisingly, this procedure has support from, you know, the Society for Transplant Surgeons, the American Society of Transplantation, and the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. And what's troubling about all of this is there doesn't appear to be some transparency because a hospital should know what's going on. And so the people that are doing this are not being transparent. And it appears that the organizations that are in support of this are not necessarily transparent either. I have a colleague who wrote a very important paper that will be published soon talking about normal thermic regional perfusion. And the the American Journal of Transplantation rejected it. Now, if everything's on the up and up, they should be the first ones accepting it to show, yeah, no, this is ethical. We're okay. You know, they should be willing to have dialogue about the ethics of this. And unfortunately, it, it kind of reminds me of Hamlet. It sounds like something is rotten in the state of Denmark.
0: Yeah, I hear you. So, so Chris, what you just said begs a question. So if hospitals and physicians aren't aware of what's happening with nomothermic regional perfusion, what about
1: patients? I can only presume that patients do not know, um, and there's there's a debate about how much you should tell the patient. So, a lot of the transplantation societies are like, "Oh, you don't want to undo unduly burden them with excessive details." But the problem is, even those in favor of normal thermic regional perfusion. Um, specifically a paper published in 19 stated, and I'm going to quote, they said, the decision makers must understand donation after circulatory determination of death procedure well enough to provide genuine authorization. Well, if families aren't aware, and I know in one of those three hospital systems, a family had no idea what was going on and I hate to say it, I imagine that in those other hospital systems, and probably many more, the families are not aware of it. I I hate to say it, I think the biggest reason is because if someone told me that, look, after your loved one dies, we're going to put tubes in them, we're going to wait five minutes, we're going to restart their heart, we're going to clamp the arteries through their brain, because if we don't do that, their brain might actually recover when we start pumping, you know you know when we start when we restart the heart or use the heart lung bypass machine in order to do it i i ca- i can't imagine someone's going to be like oh that's great that's exactly what my loved one wanted it, oh and by the way they might actually feel it you know i have a feeling and again i don't have data it's purely conjecture that you know they're not telling because well if you tell someone that they're unlikely to be willing to let that be done to themselves or to a loved one. And the other problem with this is that you you say, "Are are the families aware? Well, informed consent is not actually obtained for organ donation. There's assent usually. Or for example, like in the United Kingdom, everyone's automatically an organ donor unless you opt out. And so to say that patients in other procedures not just normothermic regional perfusion have true informed consent of what's going on i don't know that that's even being required because they're saying look you said you wanted to be a donor you wanted to give the gift of life you know i put that in quotes um euphemistically the gift of life uh on your driver's license that's consent well it's not it's assent and and no one in the medical community thinks that assent is consent.
0: Can you, actually, can you speak a little bit more about that? I mean, you're making a distinction between informed consent and assent. And, and if you could just talk a little bit more sure. about what you mean there.
1: So informed consent is basically you go in, they say, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to you. Here's what could happen. Here are the benefits. Right. Here are the burdens. Here's the effectiveness of this treatment. Right. And you say, "Okay, I'm willing to accept the risks and the benefits that are associated with this." With organ donation, you know, I know that the DMV isn't discussing normal <laughs> thermic regional perfusion. <laughs> They're saying, "Hey, do you want to give the gift of life?" Or, like I had joked previously, you know, my mother-in-law was at the DMV, and they asked this elderly woman in front of her if she wanted to be an organ, if she wanted to donate her organs, and she said, "No, I'm using them." <laughs> well, clearly she didn't understand what they were asking. And I and I hate to say it as much as I love the DMV, I'm not guessing they understand what they're asking either. And so there's no way you can say that I want to be a donor on my license is really informed consent because it's not. As I remember a case at at, at our hospital where someone was listed as an organ donor, and the Organ Procurement Network came in and said, all right, they're an organ donor. We're going to get their organs. And the family said, look, they wanted to change their mind. They they don't want to be a donor anymore. And the Organ Procurement Organization said, no, we have a right to those organs. And luckily, the Ethics Committee was consulted, and I told the Organ Procurement Network they could have those organs over my dead body, which maybe they would like except that, you know, I'm fat, so maybe my organs are not that good. But, um, you know, there is no way that me saying I want to be an organ donor or I, you know, it's like saying, do you like the idea of organ donation? Sure, I like the idea of organ donation, only when it's ethically done correctly. And nobody's going through these, you know, these details with families Unless someone raises a stink about it, and then they might get into the details. And let's be fair. If you go in to get a splinter removed from your pinky, they got to tell you that there's a chance of infection and death if they take that splinter out. And this is not happening in the organ procurement procedures. Yeah. I,
0: I, just going back to the DMV for a second, I remember a time I went in to get my license renewed and in the the, the the window next to me, there was a young kid, I mean, 16 years old, just got his license. He's there with his mother and he's filling out the forms and he asked his mom, he goes, what's this organ donation thing? And his mom goes, just, 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 just hit yes, just hit yes. And, and all I could think of is this exact thing. Boy, there's informed consent right there. Um you know, and, and maybe, the, maybe the NCBC, we should open branch offices and DMV offices so people can actually have informed consent, but that's, that's I don't think that's going to happen. But anyway, but just, yeah, it's just kind of funny how, uh, and, and I never thought of it until you brought that up, The dis, in terms of organ donation, the distinction between true informed consent and assent. And I, and I think that's, that's actually a really important thing for people to keep in mind. Um, when they're renewing their driver's license or other things. But Chris, all of this, you know, all of this um, aside, so even if people have, or or, uh, hospitals or organ procurement organizations have actual informed consent, um, what justifications do people give for doing this procedure, which itself is controversial?
1: Well, I'm going to go straight to the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network to answer that. They state in their ethical analysis of normothermic regional perfusion, they talk about the relevant pre- uh, principles of non-maleficence, do no harm, respect for persons, autonomy, and utility. Now, there's a number of problems with that, and so I'm going to just go right down the line and talk about it. Uh, you think all,
0: there's a few problems?
1: First of all, <laughs> respect for persons is not autonomy. Yeah. You know, we have intrinsic human dignity whether or not we can exercise our autonomy. You know, children can't exercise their autonomy. Demented people can't exercise their autonomy. You know, there are disabled people that cannot exercise their autonomy. That doesn't make them any less of a person because they can or they cannot exercise their autonomy. Well, actually, why, in the world of secular bioethics, that is we the don't case. No, I but agree. Don't, yeah. But we know that justice actual justice, not Rawlsian justice is fairness crap, but actual (laughs) justice is based on respect for the intrinsic human dignity of every human person by virtue of the fact that they are a human. So, So that's the first problem, right? So right off the bat, if you're potentially killing someone who is alive, you're violating their intrinsic human dignity. Secular bioethics would say, well, no, they're not exercising their autonomy, therefore we're not actually violating it, and they want it to be an organ donor, so therefore we need to make sure that we do whatever we can to make their wishes come true. Well, the other problem with that is we're not little gods. We can't ask for anything we want, nor should we be given anything we want. And so as a physician, if a patient comes in and wants me to do something harmful to them because they want it, my answer is no. You know, I am called by my, you know, patient physician relationship to what is determined to be beneficence and trust. You know, people trust me to do what's right for them. And so if they ask for something wrong, if I'm a good physician, I should deny that. Now, The second problem with their um, statement is they say, look, we're not harming them because they're already dead. Well, again, it's been shown that, well, they're probably not dead. Otherwise, why would we be clamping the arteries to the brain to make sure that the brain doesn't recover? And so that's their, well, we're not harming them. And that goes back to what Dr. Trug said before, that, You know, the only real harm in these situations is not honoring their autonomy. So now autonomy becomes non-maleficence. Then lastly, oh, and another thing about autonomy is it's not a positive right, it's a negative right. Right? So Mm -hmm. I have the right to say, no, you won't do this thing to me, but I do not have the right to demand what you do to me. Right? I mean, that's the difference. If you look at law, autonomy has never been considered to be a positive right. And that's what people are saying, is that autonomy is a, a positive right. But it's not. It's a negative right. Then lastly, they talk about utility. Well, last I, I knew that utility wasn't really an ethical um, norm. Now, utility is important. Don't get me wrong. And I, I see you smirking there, Joe. Well, it's not a moral, it's certainly not a moral principle. I mean, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think what is most telling is a statement made by Dr. Nadir Mozami. So he is a surgeon at NYU, um, is it Langoni Health or Lagone Health? I don't know how you say that. Anyway, he's one of the people that started doing NRP, normal thermic regional perfusion in the United States. And he states, you guys can sit in your offices worried about the ethics of something, but you've never had to walk into a room where you were facing a patient with a family who's dying, who's been waiting for an organ, and who is not going to get an organ, and that patient is going to die. If you've ever experienced that in your life, you will never tell me that what I'm doing is unethical. So. Right off the bat, he is treating people, vulnerable people, as mere means to help others. I mean, that's what happens all the time. I mean, we violate intrinsic human dignity to say that we're helping other people. But as you and I both know, I mean, and this is, you know, philosophy 101, you don't use a bad means to get a good end. That just doesn't happen. And if you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, they state, and I believe it's what, it's 1907? I, I don't know. Do you have your catechism Memorize as well as your ERDs? No, there's
0: only 77 ERD
1: directives. There's about
0: 2,800 so, paragraphs in the catechism. Sorry. So it, it, it is 1907.
1: I looked at my, my source. It said, first, the common good presupposes respect for the person as such. In the name of the common good, public authorities are bound to respect the fundamental and inalienable rights of the human person. And they go on to, quote, Gaudium et spes, if I'm saying that correct, by Pope Paul VI, where he said that the order of things must be subordinate to the order of persons and not the other way around. So the simple way of saying is you can't kill someone to get their organs, no matter how much good it's going to bring about.
0: Right. And just for clarity's sake, Gaudium et spes is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And that was not to correct you, Chris, but that was actually the Second Vatican Council, and not Pope Paul VI. Although Pope Paul VI was the Pope when it was when it was uh, when it was promulgated. So just
1: just a point of clarification. All right. Well, thank you. See, I, I knew you'd help me out. And then the other thing that's surprising about the statement by the urban Com- Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network is they're not actually asking if this procedure, this normal thermic regional perfusion actually needs to be done. There are actually other ways Hmm. to harvest organs that are highly effective, including normal thermic machine perfusion. And in a recent um, lecture on bioethics out of Colorado I attended, the speaker stated that, look, The data to show that normothermic regional perfusion is that spectacular is, quote, not super robust. (laughs) So now we're talking about a procedure that's controversial, that's possibly, you know, harming patients who might be feeling pain. And it's based on, quote, not super robust data. So, I mean, let's, let's look at the data, right? So, Journal of Hepatology, so that's livers, right? They found that graft loss, so that's when the organ, you know, fails, was 12% in normothermic regional perfusion versus 24% in super rapid recovery. So, that's not even the best standard. So, that's the run-of-the-mill standard. So, the difference between 12% and 24% isn't great. I had referred to normothermic machine, machine perfusion. So let's look at that. So that's where you take the organs out and you put them in a machine and you warm up the organs as opposed to putting the organs on ice. Well, in the annals of surgery, a study done in 2022 looked at the transplant survival between the standard procedure, which is the static cold storage, normal thermic regional perfusion and normal thermic m- machine perfusion so when you look at the 6 months outcome the difference is 87% versus 94% versus 90% so again that's cold versus NRP versus NMP so, Chris,
0: can three- I, can I just can I just clarify so cold it's an it's 80 the cold uh storage the cold
1: is, is 87% that's success rate that's the um, success rate? Yeah, that's survival. Survival. Okay, so with cold- Rush transplant with, survival, it's 87%. With cold so storage. you get the organ out, you put it on ice. 87%. 87% at six months.
0: Nomothermic regional perfusion is 94%?
1: percent at six and, months.
0: And, and, and nomothermic, nomothermic mach- machine perfusion is 90%. 90%, okay. So nomothermic perfusion is a little bit higher, but correct. It's, we're talking- 4% over right. thermic machine. Now,
1: over three years, thermic regional perfusion seems to be a little bit better because that's at 90%, whereas the other two are at 76% mm. at three years. But that's one study. But again, those are not super big numbers. That's 14%. I don't know that it's enough to justify doing, you know, scientifically doing a controversial procedure and in fact, a bioethicist that I know down in uh, Baylor, Adam, it's old Chunk, I think that's how you say his name. I I forget. It's a hard name to say. But he states that really what you need to do is you need to be getting rid of this normothermic ref- machine, or normothermic regional perfusion because of all the ethical problems, and you should be using normothermic machine perfusion. Mm -hmm. And if I may quote him, and I'm going to quote him, I'm not really asking, he states that authorizing NRP will further erode the ethical norms that justify the dead donor rule. This is because NRP requires transplant surgeons to take actions on the donor's body to ensure the donor stays dead by causing a certain kind of death to occur via occluded blood to the brain, unverified brain death, rather than by allowing the ischemic effects secondary to the loss of circulation to occur in the whole body. NRP involves medical intervention to facilitate just the right kind of death to maximize organ transplant and therefore violates the dead donor rule. The ethical issues at stake are those related to the justification of the dead donor rule, the protection of donors from homicide, the elimination of conflict of interest among physicians, and the preservation of society's trust in the transplant system. The assumption behind the rule is that no one's life is worth less than the organs inside their body, no matter how diminished the quality of one's life may be, and therefore one's life cannot be sacrificed for the good of another's. This is an ethical pillar of transplant medicine. If the reasons for the death declaration are inconsistent with the dead donor rule. The procedure risks compromising these values and causing a drop in donation rates. Wow. Unquote. Yes. Hmm. He said it very well. Said it very, um, very well. And then what's interesting is a, and, and he actually, he and I disagreed on the the revision for the UDDA. He was an observer as well. Another observer said Thaddeus Pope in Minnesota, who also was highly in favor of the the neuro-respiratory proposal, you know, paraphrase, I'm gonna paraphrase him, he was at that lecture I attended and he stated that, it seems we violate the dead donor rule in at least three ways. One, it is unclear that NRP donors are really dead. Two, we do pre-mortem interventions like heparin And I may add surgical prep and possible cannulation in NRP. So you're doing something to the patient to facilitate a procedure that doesn't actually help them and potentially could harm them. Mm -hmm. And then he said, three, brain dead donors are not legally dead because the guidelines do not require cessation of all function of the entire brain since they ignore hypothalamic functions. So it looks like even the secular bioethicists are well aware that this procedure and the AM guidelines, not that, you know, we need to go back there again, violate the dead donor rule. Right.
0: And Crazy actually stuff.
1: what was, what was interesting is the speaker who presented in Colorado stated that we needed to abandon the dead donor rule because that demanding a precise moment of death actually restricts the patient's autonomy that was his rationale i may say that again that that's too good not to read demanding a precise moment of death restricts a patient's autonomy <laughs> so since they want to be donors <laughs> even if they're not really dead we should declare them dead so that we're respecting their autonomous decision mm. And the Wait, thing is, this can be done well in high, in, in ethical ways. Right. I believe that normothermic machine perfusion is ethical, and you can correct me with if I'm wrong. But you know, you're declaring someone dead. You're waiting a prescribed amount of time, and you're removing the organs. Mm-hmm. I think that that's completely ethical. And if you put them into a cold storage, or you put them into a machine that warms them up. I don't see true? how that's not ethically an okay procedure to do.
0: Yeah, it's done. I mean, is again, as long as you know we've determined with moral th- certitude that the patient has died, you you know, the organs can be procured, and and certainly they could be you know, perfused in a machine, and you know, there, there's no ethical issue with that. Um, with the with the normal thermic machine perfusion, there's no issue with that whatsoever, as far as I know.
1: Right, exactly, and that was my understanding as well.
0: Yeah so Chris let's let's kind of bring this to uh kind of bring this to uh to an end here um final words of wisdom for our listeners what what
1: should what should people take away from all of this well I'm gonna leave you with a story so oh, I was boy. talking with some colleagues and I told them that according to my driver's license I'm an organ donor and they were concerned about my safety and they said, How can you do that? And I said, look, right now, the way things stand with brain death determination, we know that about half the patients are not actually dead. And so if you're not actually dead and we take your organs, we're killing you. So organ donation, according to JP2, is only acceptable when moral certitude exists. So for donation after neurologic death, if we follow the 2023 AAN practice guidelines, we know we don't have moral certitude. Now let's look at cardiopulmonary death. Normothermic regional perfusion is happening in facilities without their knowledge. It's very likely that patients are unaware that this procedure is happening. It's very likely that these patients are actually alive since we have to do things to them in order to prevent their brains from recovering. And so taking organs from those patients is also killing them. And therefore, I don't know that we have moral certitude in cardiopulmonary death donation. So now we don't have moral certitude in neurologic death or cardiopulmonary death. But knowing that I still dig my heels in because I believe that organ donation can be a great gift. However, I understand the nuances of it and I still need to do it. I need to write a statement under what conditions I would be an organ donor. And luckily, I'm in the state of North Dakota. I don't, need, uh, I don't need it to be, you know, co-signed. I just can sign it and it's legally binding. But as a physician, I don't know that I could ever recommend that anyone would be an organ donor. And that's a huge problem because I know the way things are we are violating the intrinsic human dignity to forward a common good, which is in violation of Catholic social teaching. It's in violation of the dead donor rule. And as great a gift as it is, killing someone to harvest their organs is still killing someone. And so so in the end, even though I'm digging my heels in, my colleagues are right to be concerned for me because having the donor status on your driver's license isn't a safe thing to do because we don't have moral certitude that you will actually be dead when they harvest your organs, both by the brain death standard and by the cardiopulmonary standard. Now I I have to say, um, you know, these these views are my own. I'm not. You know, these are not necessarily the views of, you know, the hospital I work for or the university I work for. But as a physician, trying to take care of my patients, especially since my patients are children, but I mean, let's be fair, we should be taking care of all of our patients. I, this this very well may be the death knell for organ donation in this country. I I just don't know how... The Catholic Church could support this.
0: Very, very interesting, Chris. I'm wondering if uh, we're going to start getting calls or emails on our consultation service about this question, um, either as, as as a result of this podcast or as people, you know, get wind of and really learn about what's happening uh, in the medical field surrounding brain death. So. Chris, uh, once again, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics On Air, and we will we'll, I'm sure we'll probably speak to you again.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to let me come on your show. For more information on the topics
0: discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at j-z-a-l-o-t at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them, and if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.